Well, the question that was asked was ridiculous. I was a high school student buying uh, most likely Mountain Dew and Twinkies, uh, what I bought most of the time in high school, at the grocery store, and the clerk asked me, would you like to add one penny to your total? And me, being to this day a very cheap human being, who will not give a cent more than I uh, was required of me, said, of course not. I'm not giving you another penny of my money for my Mountain Dew and Twinkies. Confused why she would even ask me this question. And then it became clear to me when she said, okay, your total is $6.66. And at this point, being vaguely familiar with the book of Revelation, I wondered, am I about to take the mark of the beast for Mountain Dew and Twinkies because I refuse to just give this poor girl one more penny of my hard-earned dollars? And let me just, the answer is no. All right, I did not take the mark of the beast in that uh, moment. And yet, this introduces now what is some of the most intense and controversial and discussed images in the book of Revelation. Now, Revelation 12 through 13 is really the center of the book of Revelation. And if you understand these two chapters, you will understand the rest of the book. Maybe not all the details of the rest of the book, but at least the whole picture of the rest of the book. And listen, Revelation 12 and 13, it's really, it's really complex and confusing, but ultimately, it's just a story about a dragon, a woman, and a scroll. Every book that you've been reading from your childhood on has prepared you to understand these two chapters, because every book is ultimately, there's a dragon, there's a woman who needs rescued, and there's a son who will be the hero. That's all that's going on in these two chapters. And that's how we're going to look at these two chapters is the work of the sun, the work of the dragon, and the fate of the woman. The work of the sun, the work of the dragon, and the fate of the woman. So we're going to start with the work of the sun. And, and Revelation 12 through 13 is really just beginning to give us a heavenly vision now of what's happened in the first 11 chapters. But the primary themes we've been wrestling through in Revelation 1 through 11 is the persecution of the church, the oppression against the church by uh, the surrounding world powers of the day, and how is the church to be faithful in the midst of all of this pressure? And in light of that, we're all asking the question, okay, well, if Jesus is the ruler of the kings on earth, why does it look like he's not in charge? What's going on in the world around us? Those are all the things we've been wrestling through and asking. And here now, in Revelation 12 to 13, what we get is, is basically like the full story, the full picture story of what's been going on in heaven, which explains a lot of what we're experiencing on earth. And so the first question we need to ask is, okay, well, who's the son? And listen, if, you're, if you've ever been to church, anytime a question about a son asked, is asked, the, the answer is almost always exclusively Jesus, right? And that's the answer here as well. The son referred to is Jesus. And that's clear in verse 5 when we're told uh, this woman is give, gives birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And that's a reference to Psalm 2. And if you read through all of the New Testament, uh, Psalm 2 is one of the most quoted psalms about Jesus in the New Testament. So this son, whoever he is, is Jesus. So then the question is, well, what's, what's he doing? What's his work? The work of the son, what is his work? And, and how Revelation 12 sets up is verses 1 through 6 is what's happening on earth, which is Jesus is born, Satan, uh, the dragon pursues him, uh, tries to ruin his ministry in a number of different ways, but ultimately Jesus is victorious. He's caught up to the throne of 
God is forgive. We know all that story. That's in the Gospels. But then verses 7 through 12, we read what was happening in heaven while Jesus was doing his ministry on earth. And what we find is the angels are warring against one another. And the son provides the fatal blow to everyone and everything that's warring against God. And what he does, his victorious work, is that he brings salvation to the world by conquering the dragon. And the way he conquers the dragon, we're told, in verse 11, and they, this is, this is us, actually, the church, being identified with Jesus' victory. So Jesus and us, the church, conquered him, the dragon, by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus won his victory, defeated the dragon through the shedding of his own blood. And that re- how? Why? How does, what does that explain all that? How does that work? And how that works is one of Satan's primary roles in heaven, what Satan actually means in Hebrew, is accuser. When you hear Satan, you just hear accuser. And what he was doing, apparently, was accusing people before God, right? Saying, you know, don't let that person into heaven, essentially. And Jesus, through his blood, has ended that work of Satan in heaven. And how that gets explained out through the rest of the New Testament is the gospel. The central reality of the gospel is that you and I are completely forgiven, completely washed clean, completely made whole through the blood of Jesus, through his sacrificial death, burial, resurrection, ascending to the right hand of God, such that our sins are no longer held against us. And we can go into the throne room, the presence of God, free, forgiven, And there's no one in heaven saying anything but that. That you and I are forgiven. There is no more accuser in heaven. And so just to give this more on a ground level, what this means for us. One of my common pastoral conversations with people is a real doubt around whether or not God actually loves them, is for them, cares for them. And here's how this plays out in my my own mind. It's a little bit of humor, actually. I sit down to pray at, at moments, and my own thought process is, is just, it's just imagining God, like, just thinking, boy, look at Tim, what a mess. Guy trims his own beard, uh, he's got a lot of loose hair, it's just turned gray, he's losing color. Look what he said this week. How he reacted in that one little sermon, that was, that was, that was, a, that was a failure. That time when uh, his kids were driving him nuts and he went and hid in the garage and spent 30 minutes on the shitter. I mean, I, this guy's going to pray. I don't know that anybody should listen to what he's about to say, but I mean, it's your choice, right? And that, that's, that's what's often in my own mind. My mind's just, there's no way that I can enter into the presence of God boldly, boldly confidently, without any sense of, of hesitation, because I'm, I'm well acquainted with my own, my own failures, my own weaknesses, my own shortcomings. And a part of what Revelation 12 is saying is all of that self-talk, first and foremost, is satanic in nature. And secondly, was actually kicked out of heaven through the, the work of Christ on the cross on our behalf. So when you go to pray, or when you even imagine like God's posture, his mindset towards you right now, it is not one of accusation. It is not one dwelling and meditating and lingering on your faults, your failures, your shortcomings. He is not accusing you. He 
listen, going back to Jesus' ministry, when he teaches us to pray, why he doesn't teach us to pray, uh, our heavenly Father. No, it's our heavenly Father. And not all of us have a good, a good, good representative of what a, a, of what an earthly father is, but a good father is one who welcomes his child regardless of color, regardless of, but you just want to hear from your parents. And so the first, like, reality is the work of the son who can impress on our own hearts is all of that self-talk where you would, you would think God does not want to hear from you or he's angry with you, he's frustrated with you, he's tired of you. None of that's true and all of that is the work of Satan. And the reason why it's so present among us, why it's so true in our own hearts it's because it's not in heaven. It got kicked out of heaven, and now it dwells in earth. And it's the only place, the only place Satan can accuse you is in your own heart, not before God. But every, every child knows we're in a grand story about a dragon, a hero, a son, and a woman who needs rescue. And every kid knows the dragon loses in the end. The dragon is not going to win, so do not listen to him. He is a loser. And everything that he has to say to us are the words of a loser. To go before God boldly, confidently, forgiven, made whole, made right. That's the work of the Son, and that's what's announced to us. Satan has been defeated through the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. That's point one. Okay, so then point two, what's the work of the dragon? And I've already sort of hinted to a lot of this. And the question, okay, well, who's the dragon? And again, we're told, and I've already already kind of said this, but the dragon, we're told, um, verse 9, the great dragon... Uh, was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So the dragon is an image or a metaphor, a symbol of Satan. And we're told that Satan basically does, he does two things, but there's a third thing sort of in there, but we'll get to that in point three. But the two primary works of the dragon in the world are first, he is is a deceiver. He's a liar. And we see this come out in a number of different ways. How the deceiver is going to work in the life of the world. And one image is in verse 15 where the serpent pours water like a river out of his mouth after the woman. And the image there is one of, of false teaching and lies. And it's why one of, the, one of the concerns of the church is always false teaching and lies and the ways that deception um, comes out. And the way, why that's important to highlight even now is because I think often when, I, when we think false teaching, we think like, Something that would be so obviously bad, we would immediately reject it, right? Like, you know, it's like someone who would say, hey, man, just light, light crushes on fire. It's like, well, everyone knows that's bad. Don't, don't uh, Not everyone knows that bad, just to be clear. But we shouldn't do that, right? Or like, you know, a, a, like curse Christ by name. It's like that's not what false teaching is. False teaching is actually what you get in Revelation 13. And we're going to spend a little bit more time in Revelation 13 because you're like, I got more questions. Come Wednesday night and come next Sunday. Uh, but Revelation 13 begins to highlight the ways in which Satan actually employs this, this form of deception. And it comes out in a couple of, of ways. First, we, so basically, you have the dragon, and then the dragon stands on the sea and sees two beasts. One beast comes from the sea, one beast comes from uh, the land. And there's a couple of things going on with these beasts. One is the first beast who comes out of the sea, we're told, and one of his many heads, has a mortal wound, and then he recovers. Um, and... What's, I think what's pretty clear from that is that is that is not an actual resurrection. It's a parody of a resurrection. Sometimes you, you let's listen. We just we just heard about or just were alluded to the death, burial, resurrection of Christ and His ministry, and now you have a beast that sort of looked dead but wasn't really, but actually is dead. Um, has a mortal wound. It's a parody of Christ. 
That's one way it comes out. The other other image where this comes out is is that number six six six. And and there's a number of different ways we need to understand this. But the primary way I think that, that we need to understand this is you have in uh, in Revelation twelve and thirteen three characters of evil. You have the dragon, who we're told is Satan. Uh, the beast of the sea, who we're told had a mortal wound and uh, recovered from it. And the beast of the land, who we're told uh, in verse uh, 15, gave birth to an, one of the images that was created. Basically, he breathed life into an idol that then became a real living being. And so, in other words, breath is attached to the third beast. Now, if you know, if you, you, know, if you read through the New Testament, that, all of those things, all of those three characters have direct parallels to, the dragon has direct parallels to, to God the Father and his role and his authority. The beast from the sea, who had the mortal wound recovered, has direct parallels to Jesus the Son, the work of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And then the beast of the land has direct parallels to the Holy Spirit. So many commentators have pointed out, what you have in Revelation 12 through 13 is a knockoff trinity. It's a, it's a parodied trinity. So there's a number of implications. One, I think it helps us understand what 666 is referring to, which is not uh, the total of Mountain Dew and Twinkies that will lose your salvation over. Um, but instead, it is the, the number of perfection in the apocalypse in, Re- in Revelation 67. The number of the Trinity is three. And, and instead of having 777, you have 666. You have a parody Trinity. It's, not, it's almost, but it's not quite. And almost true in, in the biblical sense is it's demonic. And that's how deception works. Self-deception is not, and, and, and deception through lies or false teaching is, is never something that is exclusively so bad on its face that you would never accept it. Satan is not stupid, right? He's not dumb. He's actually brilliant. He's a supernatural being that apparently is going to convince a lot of the world to follow after his ways. So he's, this is not a, you know, an unintelligent creature or being. He is brilliant. And the way he'll catch us in self-deception is to get us to believe something that's true, that is true, and then twist it to amplify things that are false or to exasperate that truth in such a way to create deception. So there's two ways briefly just to meditate on that, how I see that at play. I mentioned this before, but this continues to be a major concern for me in our own nation which is that our, our own kind of social media structure, the way our smartphones are designed, are designed to move us deeper into tribal communities that amplify what we are most passionate about, off, almost exclusively things that are true, but they amplify them in such a way that the people who are outside of our tribal community are demonized. And our opponents, or they become opponents, and then we are driven apart into smaller and smaller communities of such that I think one of the beauties of Christianity through history is it seems like the number of things we've had to, gr- to agree on to be in community, you could write an international treaty. The Apostles' Creed, we'll speak to that in a second. Now it feels like the number of things we're allowed to disagree on can be written down dramatically, covertly. And I think a lot of that is, is driven by what starts as truth and then moves into a self-deceived demonization of other people creating tribalized communities. This is the most disturbing thing I've heard in the last few years was, you know, four years ago, 8% of people said it's okay to use violence to uh, be peaceful with one another. That number today is 30%. Something is happening. And we see our enemy, our, our, our people who see the world differently than us, as enemies. 
that one, that's one way of self-destruction. Again, it never starts with like, hey, go, let's go burn a cross. It's not how it's going to start, ever. The second way self-destruction works is on the more personal level. And I think it's, it's best summarized by a book I'm reading, a, a pastor named Harold Sinclair. He defines it this way. He says, you know how easily your heart can deceive you. How quickly thankfulness changes to greed. Appreciation morphs into empty. Gifts become idols. Hunger escalates to gluttony. Healthy sexual desire spirals out of control into ravenous lust. The combined prowess of the devil, world, and flesh ensure that constant vigilance is required. We're forever being seduced into misbelief, despair, and other ways of getting our way. His point is, all, what, those are all good things, right? Thankfulness, appreciation, gifts are just normal, normal appetites of life. These are all good things. That they can so, like a good thing can so easily be twisted and twined and become this ultimate thing that then becomes our, our item of self-deception and self or false worship and deception. And originally, this whole sermon was going to be around deception um, and false teaching and how I see it at play in the life of the church. But I'm not primarily concerned about that work of the devil in my life. <laughs> I still am, to be clear. There's, all, there's false teaching everywhere. They're always going to be there. But that's not my primary concern anymore. And when we designed the series, it was back in January when, you know, life was amazing. Right, Dan, back in January? Um, now I am, I am far more concerned with the second work of the, the dragon, which is he is not just a deceiver. He is an accuser. And I want to start by, like, def- what is accusation? Because we're told that's what Satan does. He, he accuses the brothers day and night before our God, before we speak out of hiding. And, of course, I, I think what that means in that context is Satan's role as the accuser was basically to convince God why none of you or I should be allowed into heaven. Which is essentially what he's like, listen, they're not, their faith's not real. Look at their life. They're sinners, et cetera, et cetera. And basically the work of Christ kicked him out of the head. He's not allowed to do that anymore. <clears throat> but in terms of maybe a, a little bit of a more helpful definition or, or more an illustration that might be too far for some of you, uh, in terms of how I think about ac- accusation is I think about accusation uh, with respect to dogs. Um, I'm a moderate dog person. I like dogs. I don't love dogs. But one of the things I love about dogs, uh, the saying uh, the saying is very true, that um, I long to become the person that my dog thinks that I am. Um, it's a great summary of what dogs are. Right? They, they come and they greet you. They're excited. They nuzzle you. They just want to be petted. They just want to be loved on. They want to love on you. And that's real. Listen, that's great. But there comes a moment when the dog just does something that's disgusting, which is they, they lay on the ground and they expose their belly um, to you. And now it's like, hey, rub here. And it's like, that's why is there no hair on that? Like, what's, can you just roll back over? Like, what's going on here? And it's, their dog bellies are gross. That's all I'm saying. And that is ultimately what accusation is. What accusation does is it finds the worst, the most disgusting, the most, the most um, offensive parts of someone or something. And it says, don't look at anything else. Just look at this. Look at this dog belly. And you're like, I don't want to look at that thing. It's like, no one wants to look at that thing. And so what accusation does is it, it, it takes the worst possible frame. I don't know if that's a personal expression. And it says, only look at this. There's no other competing interpretation, information you need. Just look at this. And that is why the sins of gossip, slander, and accusation are so thoroughly condemned in the Bible one, because of their, their origin, which is it comes from Satan. But two, because it's, it's this work of, of basically not seeking truth, but seeking what's, what's most, most defiling or what's most worse or what's most offensive. 
Jonathan, I just want to walk through. This, this is one of the things Scripture speaks about in terms that are the harshest for you to read of any, any Scripture. So Proverbs 11.9 says, Whoever covers an offense speaks low, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. In other words, the person, like when someone exposes their dog belly, right? The person who says, you know, that's not who they, like, that's not the whole story. I, or I either can forget about it, forgive it, move on from it. That person speaks low. The person who doesn't, who says, oh, let's look at this, let's talk about this, let's, let's dwell in this for a minute, is going to ruin a relationship with you. Psalm 105, or 101.5 says, whoever, whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, this is God speaking, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not but a lot of, of what makes gossip so pernicious is you're allowed to present someone in the worst possible light. Not, not like actually speaking what they actually believe or what they're actually thinking. But here's the worst possible light. Let's look at this. Let's dwell on this together. And God's posture towards that is one of destruction. The reason it's one of destruction is because that's what Satan does. Satan says, here's the worst. This person is the worst. That thing is the worst. Now moving on, James 4.11 one of, the, one of the reasons why speaking about people when they're not in the room or speaking things about people that are not actually true to what they think or believe, one of the reasons why it's so important not to do that is because the moment you start doing that, instead of like going to that person, understanding them, listening to them, seeking them, um, if you don't do that, what you're actually doing is making yourself the judge of them. And that's really, that's not a good place to put yourself ever. And so James 4 says this, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. The one who speaks against a brother judges his brother. But there's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Listen, you may be thinking, well, hold on, wait a minute. Don't we need to call out sin in people's lives? Don't we need to call out these people? And we'll get to that in a second. But that's why this is such a dangerous passage. Is when, you, when, you, when you set yourself in the moment of the, the posture of judge over another person, it's a dangerous thing to do. There's only one judge, and to take his seat is not a good idea. And then fourthly and finally, James 1.26, anytime I push into the issue of, of gossip or slander, those sorts of topics, one of the, the typical objections that gets pushed upon me is, but you know, the person just asked me for my honest opinion, and I was just thinking, he's telling the truth, I was just speaking what I felt. And James 1.26 speaks to that and says this, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. This person's religion is false. There, there, there are times when people don't know, need to know what I think. Because what I think may be really dumb. In fact, let me rephrase that. It's, I think, but what I think is very dumb. And yet, if I'm just spraying it, right, as the, as the final arbiter, James says, my religion is false. And I just feel like I want to say, I mean, first of all, like I'm deeply wrestling with these things in my own heart and life because we're in a time when there's so much we need to do about right now. And I just, I want to say that up front and say, that's not who we're going to be as a church. We're going to be a, have a culture of, of one, it's okay, actually, just when someone wrongs us, there are times to overlook it. Or there are times to enter in with that person in a direct conversation. But 
I want to speak to our culture because this, this, really, this really deeply matters to me to, to see, to not have a culture of accusation or gossip in the life of our church. That when there is a, t- there's two reasons why I say that, right? One is, is when that becomes the culture of the church, we convince one another that God is our accuser. When our posture towards fellow believers is one of speaking about them when they're not in the room or, or ho- like holding them up like there's a dog belly instead of seeing all the good that's true of them as well, we become their accusers. And, and here's just a number of problems with that. One is we're always going to have something to accuse every person in this room for at all times. Right? It's not like you're going to have a, you're not perfect for six months, and then I had one moment where you, no, it's like, for six months, hang out with me for like six days, and you will have multiple things to, to, that we got to talk about, multiple things, which is like, agreed, because I'm a sinner, and so are we all. So one, that could become exhausting, right? If we're just calling out each other's sins um, nonstop. But the other side is, okay, well, wait a minute, but what about holding someone accountable to, to seek the truth and love? And I agree with that. And I even want to be clear, I'm not speaking about like instances of lawbreaking or like abuse. Like in those instances, you don't have to go to the person, you go to the police, right? You call 911, not, uh, you don't have to go to um, the person. And, and so I agree, we need to pursue truth and accountability, but in doing that, there should always be two postures. And let me just, being blunt, the people who, who speak most about the need to, to hold people to, to truth or accountability often don't embody these postures very well. The first posture is a deep understanding of my own sinfulness. Right? The, one of the best uh, proverbs is, uh, blessed is the one who, who overlooks iniquity. I think the reason that that's, that's the case um, is because as I, as I meditate on the faults of others, which is not, never a good thing, but it's going to happen. That's just human beings. It's human nature. The question I should be asking is, do I want God to be this meticulous in his judgment towards me? Right? And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 7, do not judge. And what he means is not don't ever hold a bad opinion about someone or don't ever like, it doesn't matter what people do. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, listen, as you hold a posture of judgment towards others, God will hold that same posture towards you. What kind of posture do you want him to hold towards you? And we all know what the answer is, right? Because anytime we sin against anyone else and they come to us, it's like, well, I got, I got 15 explanations and I'm going to give you all of them, right? If, actually, if all the, if the conditions of the universe had lined up perfectly, I would not have sinned, right? That's that's what we want to say, because we want grace. We want understanding. We want empathy. We want mercy. We want kindness. And when you have a deep understanding of your own sin, your own flaws, your own mistakes, your own bad decisions, then you know the person on the other side of your frustration has good reasons, has flaws. And you will not be meticulous in judgment over them. You know the dog belly that was revealed to you is not the person. The person's flawed. And before you go and hold them in judgment, you're going to hear that from them. You're going to listen to them and give them the mercy and grace and kindness Christ has given to you. So one, as we approach truth and accountability, there always needs to be a deep understanding of our own sin. But secondly, we, we approach others in truth out of the victory of Christ that has already been won for that person. Right? The reason why we go to people in, in moments of fault is not because we are the judge standing over them, but because we know the victory is for Christ has been won, and one day that will stand perfect before the Lord Jesus, made whole, which means I'm not a judge staging an intervention. I am a fellow victor helping my brother and sister see who they already are becoming in Christ. This is who you would be. Let's live into that together. Not how dare you, but this is who you are. 
who we are. So one reason why this, you know, an accusational culture and a temptation heart is, is we end up with Christians who are like, God doesn't want to hear from me. I'm, he doesn't love me. He doesn't care for me. Because that's the message we send to one another. By holding our faults against one another, by not overlooking the sin of the other, by pointing out in a critical spirit again and again and again to people where they've fallen short, no wonder people look at God and wonder, we want to sin because we're only Christians. That's what our Christian siblings are like. But no, we must embody the gospel to one another. The second reason why this matters so deeply to me is because we also then convince the outside world that God is their accuser. And God is, the, God is the judge of the world. And he's going to separate those who followed the dragon and those who followed the sun. Yet he is the judge of the world, but he is not the accuser of the world. And so our posture towards the world is not one of accusation. I don't even need to invite you. I was thinking of the non-Christian friends in your life right now. If you ask them, hey, is the church's posture one of the gospel of grace or one of accusation towards the world? How do you think they would answer? Do we embody accusation and condemnation or do we embody the words of John 3 that Jesus did not come into the world to condemn it, but to save it? Right? He did not come into the world to judge the world, but first to give his life for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever should believe in him should not uh, <clears throat> or should be forgiven but should have eternal life. But that is our gospel message. That's what the world is hearing from us. And when we live in a place or live out of a place of accusation, the gospel of grace and mercy, the idea that the accusation, the accuser was actually kicked out of heaven because God was sick of it, that idea is not credible to a world. And so a world overcome with sin and brokenness and sadness finds the, the gospel message ultimately not credible. I've been listening to a song this week uh, by Leon Bridges named, uh, it's called Rivers. And in, in the song, it's sort of a, I encourage you to go and listen to it. And it's a meditation on his own brokenness. He sings of himself, there's blood on my hands and my lips aren't clean. And later in the song, he talks about his, his mama telling him, believe in Jesus, go and get washed down at the river. But the result of the song isn't him going to the river and getting washed. It's sort of this lament of, I want to know that. I want to know that river where my, my blood is washed off my hands, my lips are made clean. But the chorus is, take me to your river, I want to go. Take me to your river, I want to know. And that's, that is the cry of the world, isn't it? I want to know forgiveness and mercy and kindness and peace. And if the church embodies the one thrown out of heaven more than we do the one who actually occupies the throne and who is a, a God of grace and mercy and kindness. The world is just going to embody that longing for the very gospel we actually have been given to proclaim to the world, which is your hands can be washed clean. Right? Your blood can be washed away as well. We have an incredible gospel, but if it is not embodied in communal living, it is not credible to the world. That every child knows that we're in a great story. Like we, that's what we've been training for this. Revelation 12 and 13, our whole life. There's a dragon, there's a woman, and there is a son. And the dragon has been defeated and has been thrown out of heaven. The accuser, right, the deceiver, the one who wants to look around the world and just show the dog bellies of the universe, ad nauseum, the accuser of the world has been thrown out of heaven. So let's not let him take up residence in your heart or on your couch. 
there is no accusation. Romans 8 makes clear there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He is a loser. So don't listen to him. So we've looked at the work of the dragon, the work of the sun, and finally the fate of the woman. And, and listen, this, this is the image most difficult to understand, but I think verse 17 is the clearest picture. And so here's what we're told about the woman. Then the dragon became furious with the woman, went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. I think the image of the woman and her offspring is ultimately it's the church, which means what Revelation 12 is saying is that Jesus defeats Satan, throws him out of, out of heaven. He's now on earth, and all he wants to do is deceive and accuse and cause discord and strife. And he in particular wants to pursue and make war on one entity, the people of God, the church, any who hold to the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus, which, which means in all of us individually and corporately as a church, we should expect constant threats of accusation and deception working their way into the life of the church. And that's going to be normal. There should never be a time when that's not going to be a thing. I, I was reading a book on this this week on church ministry. It was on uh, spiritual warfare. And basically the book begins just by saying, listen, this is not going away until Christ returns. And that's what Revelation 12 is saying. He is going to make war on the saints until Christ returns. But in the midst of that war, in the midst of the wilderness, just the way it's described, for us, we are promised three things as his people. First, we're promised nourishment. Right, so Jesus, he's caught up to the throne in verse uh, 5 and then in verse 6. We're told the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. You and I are, are promised nourishment. And so what is that? I mean, listen, it's a lot of things. It should be Christian community, right? We should have the gospel spoken over us on numerous occasions. And even this, a part of my meditation this week has been I had... Um, I had four different people say this, speak the same word of encouragement um, over me this week. And, and by the fourth time, after hearing that, I just thought to myself, why is this, why is this the abnormal experience of the church? Why is this the normal experience of the church? Right? Because, I mean, studies have said, if, like, people are going to change, it's almost impossible for them to change by you pointing out their faults. Right? Because we all have castles of self-defense erected to get, so people can't get in and call out our faults. Right? It's like... There's tripwires. There's just no, if I come to you with probably the thing that everybody knows is wrong with you, and I name that, just like if you did that with me, like, sorry, man, I got, you just, you just landed in the moat. Those alligators are going to eat you. We're not talking anymore, right? That's, that's how it goes. But you encourage someone, you speak a word of, of truth over them in light of who Jesus is making them into being, and you just break them down, right? And then now they're ready to hear the truth. Encouragement versus, uh, versus discouragement is always the better way into change. So some of the nourishment should just be Christian community. Us just saying, keep going. Christ loves you. The gospel's true. You're forgiven, right? It's just speaking those sorts of things over one another. Another piece of nourishment, and really where, uh, what I think is true and needed in the life of the church right now, what's going to be a focus for us in 2021, is just better reading and engaging uh, this book. We need to read our Bibles better than we are right now. And, and not, for, not because we don't have enough information. We probably all have enough information. Um, but uh, the reason to study the scriptures, Augustine said this, uh, and it's one of my favorite quotes related to the Bible. He says, basically, if you read the Bible, you're gonna, two things are going to happen. You're going to love God more, and you're going to love your neighbor more. And that's why we engage the scriptures. The fall, my hope is, even as we're telling the story of Revelation 12, 
you are encountering more the love of God if you go to Jesus Christ to wash you clean, to throw out accusations against you so that you could be made new creatures in Christ. So we just need to read that. We just need to hear that. Just sit in it. So I don't know what it all looks like, but 2021 is going to be a year of, of deepening our reading of the scriptures. So we are promised nourishment first. And secondly, verse 9 and 10 of chapter 13, we are promised sacrifice. And you're probably, you're probably hearing this, and I'm sorry, but this is just the thing we're uh, continually promised. And so we get in the midst of this image of the, or vision of the first beast, John just slows it down and says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. Pay attention to what I'm about to say. And then he quotes one of the most depressing verses in all the Bible, which is from Jeremiah. Um, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword he must be slain. It's like, wow, that's an, that's an encouraging message. And thanks. But here's a call for the endurance and faith of saints. And the reason why that's a call for endurance and faith is because when you know what's in front of you, which is certain suffering and rejection at the hand of, of the cultural powers of the day, then the call is not to cultural victory, but it's to endurance and to faith. And Jeremiah's story is, by, by allowing this process of exile, or question for, by allowing this process of exile, the promise of future salvation is coming to a full capacity. And actually that verse's original reference is to the fact that innocent people will be caught up in judgment of the exile, and they are not to lose hope in God, but to hold on to the promises of God in the midst of suffering and exile. And so as I think again about 2021, the people who are best equipped to endure suffering are people who are who actually experience what, what a good family is like, right? And so one of the things I want to meditate on together is what does it mean that we're, we're, to, we're granted? Our mission statement again is we're called to be a praying family, a mission charged with praying and sending. Paul's primary metaphor of the church in the New Testament is his siblings, brothers and sisters, adelphoi in Greek. What does it mean that we're a family? What does that mean together? Because a family is going to endure cultural oppression, oppression, pushback, far more than, a, than what the church often is, which is atomized individuals who all, have all loosely agreed to hold to a few things until we die. We want to be a family. What does that mean? We want to meditate that in the year to come. And the last thing we're promised as Christians in Revelation 12 and 13 is victory. Right? Verse 12, the dragon has been defeated by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony so by announcing the victory of Jesus Christ over sins of the world, we are participating in the victory of Jesus over the dragon, and they love not their lives even unto death. When we're willing to enter into that with suffering. And so here's the thing. Christ has won victory over the dragon, but this is not some bland victory. This is a very clear victory, which is that no more accusation exists against the saints in heaven. There is forgiveness, there is grace, there is mercy and kindness through the gospel of Jesus. So first, like the, the victory we announce, the way we slay the dragon, right? Which in any good story, all the good people try to slay the dragon. The way we slay the dragon is by announcing there is no more accusation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The next time you start thinking, I can't pray, God doesn't want to hear from me, I'm not worthy of him, you know all of that, you know where it's coming from now. And when you see the world, people in the world who believe there is no, there is no, uh, <laughs> Forgiveness for their guilt. There is no healing for their sin. We all know that where that word is coming from. And the way we slay the dragon is by announcing the good work of Jesus Christ to ourselves, to one another, and to the world. 
But here's the thing. If any of us are actually going to believe that, we have to embody what we're going to believe. Embody the good word through the act of obedience. This idea that God gave his own son to shed his blood to both free us from condemnation and accusation and to reopen our own path back to God. There's nothing in the throne room holding you back from entering in. The New Testament describes the church as the temple of God. That is who we are now. The dragon has been thrown down and has been defeated, and he may have time left now, sure, and he is at work and is waging war as best he can, but it's only a matter of time. And so we are to keep slaying him until Jesus comes to finish what he started. Because every kid knows, like, the dragon gets slayed in the end. He is going down. And in our story, he already has. The time is short. Father, announcing that there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that the accuser has been defeated by crucifixion of Jesus by the hands of Rome. This is what a thrilling story. And yet as we pull back the curtains in Revelation 12, what the story actually is, is a cosmic war where you have spared no expense and leveraged every, uh, every piece of warfare you have to free us from the accusation and destruction of death. And so now, God, would you as we gather as your community, free us to be your people, we pray. All this in Jesus' name.